Welcome to 100 Days in Mexico. I'm Melanie. This is the story of how a 100-day solo road trip, surfing my way down the Pacific coast of Mexico, changed my life forever. Ready to go on a road trip? Strap in, let's do this. Episode 10, White Trash. T minus 2.5 years. Methamphetamine changes the brain. It uses all the feel-good chemicals that the brain can possibly produce all at once. And it leaves a person completely unable to reason, think straight, or feel any sense of pleasure for a period of weeks to months following a single use. I had agreed to give Kurt 30 days. Six months later, the drug was gaining a deeper hold on him than ever before. Sometimes he would go a month between episodes, and other times just a few days would go by, and he would disappear for a few days and return a crazed animal. I could see it in his eyes, a look of madness that terrified me like a rabid dog. He was unpredictable and intensely angry. The smallest thing would send him into a fit of rage about something I had done horribly or how I had no right to judge him since he was financially supporting me. Mentally, he wasn't home. Some demon had hijacked his brain and spoke through his mouth. The man I loved was MIA. It's well over our agreed upon 30 days. I'm drawing some boundaries. You go to treatment full-time, inpatient, or I leave. You can't stay in the house any longer, I would tell him. That's insane. I pay all the bills. You can't kick me out of my own house. Well, you're right. My friend will move into the spare bedroom and we will split the rent. You just pay for the garage with your tools. He refused to go to inpatient treatment, but agreed to go to sober living where he could still leave and go to work daily. He continued to bargain with me. Then I will come and go as I please to get tools out of the garage. I might come in and watch TV sometimes, you know, to de-stress. No, if you're in the garage, fine, but you can't come into the house. You are crazy. It's my house. I've been supporting you for months, and now I can't even come just to chill out? Do you realize I'll be sharing a room with a bunch of newly sober guys, and I'll have no privacy? If I get a roommate, it won't be your house. You can't come in. I need space from you, and it's not fair to the roommate to share the house with you. Why? Because I disappear for a few days at a time? It's not like I'm a criminal. You're treating me like I'm some kind of dangerous person. No, Kurt, I love you, but you aren't thinking correctly. You don't get to go live at a treatment facility and come home to your comfy couch to zone out to the TV for hours every afternoon and then go back. It doesn't work like that. You have to be all in. You think you're so spiritually superior to me. You're so ungrateful for all that I've given you. You should have stayed back at your corporate job where at least then you were still pretty. And on and on, we proceeded like that for months me trying to get him to commit to treatment and him not acknowledging the severity of his addiction. He couldn't. The drugs had destroyed the part of the brain that allowed for critical thinking. Out of all people, I should have been able to empathize. But I wasn't thinking right either. After several unsuccessful attempts at kicking him out, I knew I 
needed either to accept that he would continue to use crystal meth and I would continue to watch him sitting on the couch watching surf movies, not getting treatment, being the victim of his unpredictable anger, or I would have to get a place of my own. I was terrified, but not of him. Lack of money petrified me. I was working seven days per week and only able to net a few hundred dollars per month after I paid all the teachers and the rent on the building. There was no way I had enough income to rent a place of my own. I really didn't even make enough to pay for food and a cell phone. We were at an impasse. Kurt's ego refused to cede control and I refused to do what it would take to escape a bad situation. A lot of good friends supported me during this time, listening to my endless drama. One of the reasons I loved my friend Silva was that she always said what needed to be said without sugarcoating anything. On a power walk through Balboa Park, Silva explained to me that I needed to act in my own best interest, regardless of money, that money would work itself out. I don't have any other options, Silva. You aren't hearing me. I can't move out. I simply don't have the money. As we approached the footbridge over the 163 freeway, she stopped and looked into my eyes. She said something that only Silva could get away with. That's so white trash, Melanie. That's battered woman thinking. You are way too educated to live like that. In just a few weeks, her words would ring inescapably true. But I had another fear, one even bigger than ending up broke, homeless, and hungry. My parents. A little drug use was no reason to leave a marriage. My dad had recently called me to tell me about his best friend from church, who used to use drugs years ago, but now loved Jesus, and who loved his wife, who stayed with him through the whole thing. Melanie, the divorce rates for second marriages are high enough. Third marriages almost never make it. Wow. Thanks, Dad. Yup, I'm way better off married to a drug addict who refuses treatment than to risk being single and unwanted. Good point. My mom had her own unhelpful advice. She called me to give me the phone number of the wife of the Jesus-loving former drug user from their church in case I wanted to talk to her. Then she recited some scripture that I already had memorized about how the Lord works everything out for the good of those who love him. It wasn't their fault. They just didn't get it. My parents didn't know any other people addicted to drugs, and for that matter, they didn't know any other gay people, non-Christian people, or Democrats. Those kinds of people didn't attend their church or homeschool their children, so my parents didn't know them. My parents hated the idea of me leaving the man with whom I had formed a sacred union before God. Or maybe they hated the thought of what their church friends would think about the fact that I had been divorced. Twice. Drug use was not a reason to leave. No matter how much I tried to explain the mental games Kurt played with me, my parents didn't get it. I asked them to attend Al-Anon so maybe they could understand how addicts think and behave. They didn't. It pained my dad to know that Kurt was hurting my feelings with his words, quote. So he called Kurt to explain to him that he needed to be nicer to me. 
because that would do the trick. Al-Anon is a 12-step program that supports friends and family of addicts or alcoholics. I mentioned to my Al-Anon group one night that I was thinking of leaving my, quote, qualifier. Qualifier was the euphemism we used to describe the addict or alcoholic in our lives, who drove us to attend the 12-step meeting of our own, to share our common experience of strength and hope as it related to living with such people. The meeting didn't allow crosstalk, which meant we were not allowed to comment on another person's sharing. We could word vomit whatever we wanted, and there was no criticism or judgment or even advice giving. The only response you might get from those in the metal folding chairs around you was, keep coming back. I had been coming back for almost six months, faithfully, two meetings per week. I had joined the service committee and even signed up to lead meetings. I found a sponsor. I met with her weekly for coffee. I did the homework she assigned. I read the big book. I prayed the prayers I found listed there. I worked the 12 steps, admitting I was powerless over another person's addiction and that my life had become unmanageable, and so on, until I completed the entire program. And I kept coming back. They said, it works if you work it and you're worth it, so work it. Those words stuck. I wanted to believe I was worth it. On that particular night, the idea of I'm worth it was starting to become more than an idea. I was starting to believe it. Hi, I'm Melanie. I began my share. Hi, Melanie. The group responds in unison. Welcome to the newcomers. I started my share with the typical introduction. Tonight, I'm exhausted, mentally, physically, spiritually. I launch into my allotted three minutes of sharing time per meeting. You guys, I feel like I'm living with a pissed-off 10-year-old trapped in a very large man's body. It's such a mind game because I'm looking at the face of the man I am in love with, but the words coming out of his mouth and his body language belong to a monster. Sometimes I believe his venomous words because I don't know if I'm talking to Mr. Jekyll or Dr. Hyde. He knows me so well. He knows just what to say to hurt me the most. There's a lot of emotion going on. I just get so confused. I don't know. I love him. I know that. But I feel like the life is being sucked from me. I feel so small and weak and fragile. I'm scared. I'm scared there will be nothing left of me if I don't get out. I want to get off this roller coaster. I know I hold the emergency stop switch, and I don't know, I'm wondering if it's time to flip it. I guess that's it. Thanks for letting me share. I was leading the meeting that night, so after we had recited the serenity prayer, I headed for the coffee station to set up the post-meeting chit-chat. I looked up from arranging cookies and saw three women in their 60s making a beeline for me. Alice gave me a big hug and thanked me for my honest share. Linda said she always learned something every time I shared and also thanked me. Then their eyes grew serious. As Janet warned me, Melanie, if you're going to leave him, and and we won't tell you if you should or shouldn't, but if you feel scared, in my experience, it will only get worse. So if you're going to leave him, then do it when he's at work. Don't tell him your plans. Just pack your things. 
the moment you leave is the moment you are in the most danger. I was fighting back tears. I wanted to continue the conversation, but it was all too overwhelming. As I got in my car after the meeting, I felt the roller coaster start up. Had I really used the word scared? I wasn't scared scared. Maybe just a little unsure. Kurt had never hurt me. He would never hurt me. No, I wasn't scared. I didn't need to slip away under the cover of darkness. Kurt and I would have an adult conversation, communicate about what was and wasn't working, and simply take some time apart to sort things out. No big deal. He tore open my suitcases and pulled out fistfuls of neatly folded clothing, flinging them around the living room. In contrast to his screams, the clothing hit the wall in silence. They simply lost speed and slid to the floor in crumpled little piles. I too dropped to my knees in slow motion, covering my head, heaving silent sobs. When he had finished tearing through my third and final suitcase, the room looked like a hurricane had struck. Pictures were knocked off the wall. All of my worldly possessions were strewn everywhere. I was in a ball on the floor, my back to the corner of the wall, my head was between my knees, my hands over the back of my head. Sobs racked my body. Why are you crying? He screamed down at me. You want to go? Fucking go. Go now. Get the fuck out. Is this the shit you want? He barreled around the room, scooping up armloads of clothes that he had just flung everywhere. Take it. Arms full, he kicked open the back door and hurled my clothing into the dark alleyway where the nosy neighbors had already started to peek out of back, of back doors and windows. His tirade continued. He screamed that I had, better not, I had better tell him where I was going, and if I was staying with a man, I had better be prepared for the worst. How I would end up homeless, since he had been the one covering the rent for both of us. How I was such a selfish person for not appreciating his generosity. How if, he ha- if I had so much money of my own, why hadn't I been helping him out with the rent? and how I probably have been lying to him for months and stashing away money, and on and on. The more he yelled, the more I shrunk into myself. I wanted to disappear, to shrink into such a small ball that I could just disappear. Maybe this was a bad plan. Maybe I should just stick it out with him a bit longer. Maybe he just needed more time. After all, we were husband and wife. I'm not exactly sure what happened next, but something inside of me snapped. Perhaps it was an animal instinct for survival. Somewhere deep in my belly, I knew I had to go through with my plan to leave. Curling into a ball was not going to work. I got an idea. I would force him to give me an excuse to leave, one that even my parents would accept. I got to my feet and I shut off my tears. I emptied myself of emotion. I stood in the doorway, blocking him from returning from the alley where he was now loading things into my car, trying to be helpful. I made myself big. He moved like a pissed off bull and he outweighed me by 80 pounds, but I felt no fear. I moved toward him until our faces were inches apart. If you're such a big, strong guy, then why don't you hit me? Do it. Just smack my face. You know you want to do it. Do it. 
he didn't hit me. He was shocked. He backed down. He said I was crazy and that he didn't want to hit me. He was right. I was out of my mind. The neighbors, filled with drama lust, helped me gather my things from the garage. And that was it. One neighbor asked if I was okay and said she had just called the police for a domestic disturbance and would I like her to call them back and say we didn't need them. I felt like, well, I felt like white trash. What was a good, wholesome, Midwest farm girl with a master's degree in math and a small business owner, an elected official on the town council, doing in the alley at 11 p.m. with the cops about to show up? White trash, indeed. I drove away, back seat piled with all my worldly possessions, heart profoundly empty, possessed with a special type of loneliness that only follows from heartbreak or death. I wanted my mom, sometimes feeling so alone, so bad, needing support. No one will do but mom. But I knew I couldn't call her. In my mind, I knew she would offer no support. I had failed. If only he had hit me, then my parents would have understood. I knew in my heart I had done the right thing by leaving him, but the part of me that longed for approval from mom felt like a miserable failure. I hope you liked the episode. If you did, I have a behind-the-scenes video commentary available on my website, 100daysinmexico.com. I also have all kinds of writing from my current adventures. I'd love to share this stuff with you. So if you head on over to 100daysinmexico.com, you can sign up to become an insider and read all of the behind the scenes content and all of the current stories, the dramas, and the adventure that I'm experiencing while I travel around the world, trying to improve my surfing, trying to improve my life. Until next time.